0: Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician, Setu Mahalat Leonot, a contemplation of Heman the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves, Selah. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up. And I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark? And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you, I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. All right, we are in Deuteronomy 28. This is verses 38 through 44. It's entitled, The Blessings and the Curses, Part 4. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. The people of Israel obviously failed to uphold the words of this law because they were sent into exile. Can anyone here disagree with that? No. The Lord directly through Moses and through the prophets warned Israel to pay heed. They were given all the information they needed in advance to live rightly and all of the warnings that explained what would happen if they didn't. They had only themselves to blame when the disasters that are stated came upon them. Eventually, the prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people came to pass. But along with those things came their prophesied return to the land, just as they were told would come about. In fact, the things spoken were so precise that Daniel knew exactly when to pray for restoration. From Daniel 9, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. As such, Israel couldn't say, Well, we are finally getting what we deserve by being returned to the land. No. The best they could say is, Well, despite our unfaithfulness, the Lord has been faithful to us. But once they were in the land, they again neglected the Lord. Hence, the bad spoken of in the law continued after their return. Our text verse here says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I've called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Despite their neglect of the Lord, he sent them prophets to tell them what to do, and he promised to bless them as they did it. It's all one giant lesson that unfortunately still has not been learned by them. They were exiled a second time according to everything stated in the law. They only had themselves to blame for the past 2,000 years of misery. Yes, it is more than common for them to blame those woes on pretty much anything else but themselves, but that is how it is. Then now that they are back in the land, they are certain that it was because they somehow deserve it, or because of their own smarts, power, or ability. They're just like their fathers at the time of Haggai. But their unfaithfulness does not, once again, negate the faithfulness of the Lord. I say this sermon after sermon, and it is a word to them. But it is also a word to those in the church who completely failed to get it. They dismiss Israel of today being back in the land today as an aberration. Or they simply reject that there is any connection between the two at all. A little more study and trust in God's word and a little less reliance on nonsense. And they would get it right just as Israel should. How sad that we can't. But all of this serves a purpose. And we will see that purpose once again in today's verses. When everything is placed in relation to Christ, everything makes sense. Along with that is his word that puts such things into their proper perspective. There are an immense variety of tools to help us to do so. One of them will be seen in today's verses. It's called parallelism. I will explain it now and then we will get right into the passage. Parallelism is a type of construction found in sentences where clauses or complete sentences carry the same grammatical structure. Parallelism can help explain what is actually being conveyed when words or thoughts are otherwise difficult to pin down. Further, the syntactical similarities can be used to provide rhetorical effect. This is something you'll find all the way throughout the Bible, but especially in the Psalms. It's called parallelism. Now we will proceed. Great things, such as parallelism, are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is four points of loss. It's verses 38 through 41. Verse 38, you shall carry much seed out to the field. The words of this verse are set in contrast to those of verse 28, 11. There it says, And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. It takes a certain amount of grain to sow an entire field. The thought of carrying out food that could be eaten, especially at the beginning of the harvest season, when supplies would be dwindling, would be tough, especially if things weren't going so well. The weight of the bag would seem heavy. I could have a lot of meals with this, but one cannot reap unless he first sows. And so much seed is carried out to the field. During the time of Israel's disobedience, it would be better to just eat the grain and die. Verse 38 continues, but gather little in. What is promised as a blessing for obedience is now stated as a curse for disobedience. In it is a word found only this one time in scripture, translated as consume. It is the word hashal, coming from a primitive root, meaning to eat off. The idea being set forth in these words is that at the beginning of the cycle, the farmers would take bags and bags of seed, saved from the previous crop, and they would sow it into the field. However, at the end of the harvest, there would be little to show for all of their effort. This will be the case, as noted by Isaiah because of the sins of the people. Isaiah 5 says this, Woe to those who join house to house, they add field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. The disastrous nature of Isaiah's words is realized in what the homer and the ephah represent. The weights are described in Ezekiel 45. Ezekiel 45:11, the ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer and the ephah one-tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according to the homer. If an ephah is one-tenth of a homer and if an entire homer yields only one ephah, Then there is to be such loss of grain in the harvest season that the yield will not be enough to even sow one-tenth of the land next year, even if nothing was used for food or for selling. The output speaks of total disaster. Of the reason for the disaster, in this case, Moses says, verse 38 continues, for the locust shall consume it. The locust plague upon the land is spoken of in several places. At times, it is symbolically used to represent invading armies, but the thought of the locust is generally that of destroyed produce. From Joel 1 verse 4, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. The reason for the coming of the locust has already been explicitly stated right here in Deuteronomy 28:15 saying, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. That is then reflected in the words of Amos. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. The symbolism here is that of the failure of the people under the law. A great harvest indicates obedience and prosperity. As the curse is promised, and as it is said to have come upon the people, it is an overall note of the failure of Israel. The harvest season fails to produce. This is in contrast to what Christ sets forth. Even before the completion of his ministry, his sowing of seed anticipated the magnitude of the harvest. First from Luke 10, then he said to them, the harvest truly is great. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then from John 4, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows, and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. The idea of the prosperity of the harvest after first sowing one seed, meaning Christ in his death and those who follow him, is reflected in the Psalms. From Psalm 126, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. For now, along with the lack of harvest because of the great devourer of the fields, the locust, another calamity is noted. Verse 39, you shall plant vineyards and tend them. A vineyard is planted in the hopes of gathering grapes. It is something that requires attention and care, but it is also dependent on the right conditions to be healthy, such as the right moisture for the type of vine. Israel is told that they will, in fact, plant vineyards. They already knew the land was favorable for this when the spies were sent into the land many, many years before. Upon their return, they brought a cluster of grapes as evidence. Thus, Moses acknowledges that this will be the regular practice of the people henceforth. However, in disobeying the Lord and in the failure to adhere to his word— there will be consequences. Verse 39 continues, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. The translation adds in two unnecessary articles. It says, Ve velote egor, And wine, no, you shall drink, and no, you shall gather. To say the wine implies that there is wine. And to say the grapes implies that there are grapes to gather. But both thoughts are erroneous. There will be no grapes to gather, and thus there will be no wine to drink. The words speak of complete futility concerning the effort put forth. In this clause is a new word, agar, meaning to gather. It will be seen here and twice in the Proverbs, Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 10. It comes from primitive root signifying to harvest. There will be no such gathering because of the lack of grapes. Verse 39 going on. For the worms shall eat them. It is singular. Ki tokelenu ha tolaat. For shall eat them the worm. Because of the singular, the tola, or crimson grub worm, is set forth as the destroyer. It will come forth and ravage the efforts of the people. In the prophets, the vineyard is set forth as a people group. The fruit is the product of that group. And the wine is a cultural expression such as joy, debauchery, wrath, and so on. Though a bit lengthy, this is well expressed in Isaiah chapter 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall. And it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. For he looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. The vineyard is Israel and Judah, the people of God. Jesus then takes this example and shows that what the old covenant failed to do, he would accomplish in the giving of the new covenant. Here, another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit and the vine dressers took his servants beat one killed another and stoned another and he sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them then last of all he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son but when the vine dressers saw the son they said among themselves this is the heir come Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus' words speak of the leaders of Israel under the law. In saying that he would give the vineyard to other vine dressers, he was not saying that the church would replace Israel. Rather, he was referring to the covenant arrangement. Israel and Judah would be led under a new type of leader. That's found in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, of which the Gentiles would participate in as well, sharing in the commonwealth of Israel. That is found in Ephesians 2:12. As for the worm which is destroying this vineyard, it is a picture of Christ. Here's what it says in Psalm 22, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. The symbolism was clearly seen when we looked at the book of Jonah, where the tola, or the crimson grub worm pictured Christ destroying the plant that grew as shade over Jonah's head. The vineyard of God's people under the law would be destroyed, but the vineyard of God's people would remain tended to by new dressers of the vine. Verse 40, you shall have olive trees throughout all your territory. This is to be taken as an axiom. Moses has already said that the land is filled with olive trees. This was back in Deuteronomy 6. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. So you have olive trees already there. This implies that the olive trees are well established. Unlike vineyards that need a lot of attention, olive trees need a little bit of pruning and the like, but they should generally be hardy enough to produce olives once they are up and running. They are considered to be rather low-maintenance plants. When Israel moves in, they will have olive trees, and the trees should produce accordingly. However, in their disobedience, verse 40 continues, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil. Veshemen lo tasuk, and oil... No, you shall anoint. This is a new word, suk, meaning to anoint. It comes from a primitive root signifying to smear over. Hence, it is the act of anointing. As before, there will be the hope of harvest and the heartbreak of having none. To anoint oneself is to enjoy the luxury of the olive upon the body. It is a blessing beyond just eating, but of tending to the body in a way that both blesses the individual and excites those around as well. Here's what it says in Ruth 3. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. Such will not be the case for disobedient Israel. And Moses explains why. He's telling them everything in advance. You have to keep remembering this. Everything that happened to Israel, everything that is happening and will happen to Israel was all told in advance. Just keep reminding yourself of this. Verse 40 continues, For your olives shall drop off. It is singular. Ki yishal zetecha. For plundered your olive. Pretty much every single translation, including the Greek, gives the sense of the olives simply dropping off. They're failing they're casting off, and so on. However, that might require the verb nashal to be used in a way that is not intended. As such, this may be a form of the verb shalal, which means to plunder, spoil, booty, and so on. I would prefer this rather than simply dropping off for a particular reason. If you're still awake, and if the Lord hasn't come for us by the end of the next verse, I will enlighten you as to why. No matter what. There will be no anointing from the olive. In the Bible, the olive clearly evinces the idea of a witness. For example, this is said of the two witnesses of Revelation 11, verse 3, who are then explained in Revelation 11, verse 4. Here's what it says. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. But these two witnesses are more fully explained in Zechariah chapter 4. Here's what it says there. So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked to me, saying, What are these, my lord? and then down a little bit in Zechariah 4. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. The olive goes from the idea of being a witness to the idea of anointing and being anointed. This then is explained in the same metaphor by Paul concerning the failure of the old covenant to the supremacy of the new, meaning the Christ covenant. This is seen in who the witness is that is anointed to convey its message from Romans 11. For if the first fruits is holy— the lump also is holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off and they also if they do not continue in unbelief will be grafted in for god is able to graft them in again for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree the words of paul neither indicate that the jews have been replaced by the church nor do they indicate that there is one gospel to the church and one to Israel. The point is that Israel continued with the law and is no longer a suitable witness to what God is doing in Christ. Christ has come and those who received him, which are predominantly Gentiles, are now the witness. Someday the matter will swing back in the other direction when Israel is brought into a right, meaning a new covenant relationship with the Lord the two witnesses of zechariah and revelation enoch and elijah it is believed reflect this union enoch is not a hebrew the elijah is both testify to the work of god in christ for all people as i noted a minute ago this idea of being a witness the olive tree goes to the idea of anointing and being anointed meaning the olive oil. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 1. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us, is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Israel is currently broken off as a witness and they lack the anointing of the Spirit. All of this is seen in the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28 as is spoken forth By Moses. Next, verse 41 You shall beget sons and daughters. Israel has continued on for millennia. The fact that they have testifies to the truth of the words of Moses right now. They will have sons and daughters. Were it not so, there would be no Israel. However, in times of disobedience, it would quite often be the case that they would be deprived of them. Moses, in advance of such times, calls out the warning. Verse 41 continues but they shall not be yours. The sense of the translation is incorrect. In begetting children, it means that they are their children. Rather, it reads, velo and no shall be to you. Even though they belong to those who beget them, they will not be with their begetters. It is the state of being deprived of one's continuance. Thus, there is the sense of complete desolation in this regard. The name ends. And there is a tragic reason for this. Verse 41 continues, For they shall go into captivity. Ki yeleku For they shall go in the captivity. The word captivity is brought alive. It has become the foe of the people, carrying away their sons and daughters. The chances of ever returning to one's family, home, city, and country are infinitesimally small, and they grow smaller with each day that passes as Moses has already said of this earlier, Deuteronomy 28 verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long. And there shall be no strength in your hand. Moses reaffirmed and explained what he has already stated. Israel cannot say that they were not warned. As far as this verse, the idea of begetting sons in a new way and with a new and unbreakable bond of sonship is found in Christ through the new covenant. Here's what it says in John 1. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then again in John 11, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The number of verses that speak of this unbreakable and eternal bond between a parent and his children, meaning God and us, is abundant. What Israel could not be assured of, meaning keeping their children under the Mosaic Code, was only reflective of their state as children of God. On the other hand, what God has done in Christ in the new covenant is reflective of our eternal security in the arms of our heavenly father. Thank God for Jesus. As you're still awake, well, most of you, and as the Lord has obviously not come for us, and because we have now completed this verse, I promised you an explanation of the verb concerning the olives noted in the previous verse. Why do I think it is the word shalal plundered and not nashal to drop off? The reason is the parallelism used by Moses in the verses that we have looked at so far. So here's what we're gonna do we're gonna look at these verses and how they are parallel. A you shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little limb, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. For the worms shall eat them. Next one, you shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off, or rather, your olive shall be plundered. And then the last one, you shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. In seeing the results of the four actions, it is apparent that the word plundered is most probable. Each has had an external action taken against it. The locust consumes, the worm eats, your olive is plundered, your children go into captivity. Therefore, the word shalal is probably the best choice for the Hebrew. Now, probably none of you care about that, but the Lord is telling us something and he is doing it in a manner that because this word is so close to the other word in the form that it's in. They don't know which it is, but if you look at the parallelism, which is what I laid out for you, you can see that that is the answer. That means a lot to me. Some people don't care about that. It means a great deal to me because this is the word of God, and every single word has to be evaluated from the perspective that God is trying to tell us something, and he's doing it in a very special way. Okay, it would be improper to be dogmatic about this, but the parallelism calls out for this rendering. In this, you can see the importance of looking at such passages in this light. When you study the word, look for these internal cues, and you will be in the sweet spot of at least knowing that you may have a particular insight not readily seen in a cursory reading of what is before you. Of these past four verses, Micah calls out the curses of all four of them to the people, but in a different order. Children, grain, sowing, olives, and then the produce of the vine. Here's what he says. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. The sad state of not attending to the law, even after being warned through the prophets, is the lot of Israel. Someday they will see the futility of the law and understand their need for Christ Jesus, who has set before redeemed man a new and a better hope. Here I am in the children God has given me because of the work I accomplished before him. We are united as an eternal family, when before such a state seemed tenuous, even grim. What the law could never do because it was weak, I accomplished with my own glorious right hand. For any who will an eternal relationship seek, come to me and it shall be so. The union shall stand. Here am I and the children God has given me because I prevailed over the law that was set against you. When they nailed my body to that tree, it was in fulfillment of what I was sent to do. Come and partake of the wonder of this family. Come and be my children. Yes, come unto me. Our second thought today, lower and lower. It's verses 42 through 44. The words of our final verses today are pretty much the opposite of the blessings which are stated in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter. Here's what it said there. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath, if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. For now, instead of the Lord opening his good treasure from the heavens, he will open his stores of destroying insects. Verse 42, locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. The translation is deficient for several reasons uperi yeyaresh Every tree yours and fruit your ground shall possess the cricket The word tree is singular the word land is better rendered as ground and the word locusts is both singular with an article and it is a different creature than was just seen in verse 38 It is hotzlatzal or the cricket It is a new word, slatsal, that comes as a reduplication of the word salal, meaning to tingle or to quiver. By reduplicating it, one gets the sense of whirring or chirping. This will be seen six times, and the other uses will help give the sense of what this word is trying to tell us. Symbols, right? Or you got fishing spears, which are harpoons which rattle together, dot, 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 and whirring wings is how it's translated in the book of Isaiah. I chose the word cricket to disassociate it from the locust, but it could be some insect that buzzes or flies. Whatever they are, they are identifiable by the sound of their wings, and they would consume the vegetation readily. Because the word also means symbols, one would think cricket would be a good choice. As far as what they do, the word used is yarash. It signifies to possess or to inherit. As such, it means that it has taken over the trees and the fruit as its own possession. There are other words that signify consume, and so the thought may be that they come to eat the fruit to the point where the fruit is useless, without actually eating all of it. As far as trees, there are types of mole crickets that can damage the root systems. Hence, I am going with them as the offender. As I'm not a renowned entomologist, please do not buzz with excitement over my translation. In the end, it may be moth-eaten or swatted down like a fly. What seems obvious is that like the trees and the fruit of Israel, when the people did not heed the Lord's words, man under law is simply unable to flourish or to bear proper fruit. Paul says just this in Romans chapter 7, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which are by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Next, in contrast to being above only and not beneath, as is said in verse 13, Moses says, verse 43, the alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you. The stranger who in your midst shall rise above you upwards, upwards. In verse 13, Moses' words were simply put and not superlative. When they were in a right relationship with the Lord, Israel would be above, but they would not consider themselves overly exalted. In other words, no matter how above they were in relation to others, they were always under the Lord. But Moses' words now are in the superlative. In not putting the Lord first above them, the stranger who is in their midst, meaning right among them, would be exalted above them and continue to rise above them. And at the same time, verse 43 continues, and you shall come down lower and lower. ata tered mata mata and you shall go down, lower, lower. Again, Moses speaks in the superlative. Israel won't just go down, but they will continue to go down. There will be no hope of ever rising from their undignified state. One cannot first help but think of Christ's contrast to this. Here's what it says in Ephesians 4. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first Descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Again and again, you see the contrast between Israel's failure and Christ's victory. Christ voluntarily placed himself under the law. In doing so, he descended even to death. But in his fulfillment of the law, he has ascended to the highest point of all. For those in Christ, The same is true. To be in Christ, in your midst, O God, means to be raised with him. Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And here it is, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In contrast to them are those who hold to the law for their justification, trusting in self, because the law is of deeds. As Jesus said, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Those speaking to the leaders of the law, being leaders implies having followers. If you reject Christ, you by default have placed your hope elsewhere. The only way for Israel to get out of the bind that they are in is to come to the one who can raise them to himself. And finally, instead of lending to other nations and being the head, as stated in the blessings, the curse will bring the opposite. Verse 44, he shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. The word he is in the emphatic position. He shall lend to you. The one who is in the midst of the people and who is the borrower Is the one who now has risen above Israel, and he is the lender. So much will this be the case that there is no time when Israel would lend to him. Whatever Israel possessed, it would be unneeded by the stranger who had risen above them. Likewise, verse 44 finishes with these words He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Again, he is in the emphatic position He shall be the head. It is an embarrassment of the highest sense. The great and exalted nation of the Lord has become the very tail of everything that is going on because they have rejected the Lord who established them. The words of this verse seem to recall the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, for the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel palm branch, and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Israel was promised to be the head, but in not seeking the Lord, they would be the tail. And even the head of Israel, its leaders, would be a part of the tail. In failing to come to Christ and remaining under the law, One can only expect this position and the fate of being cut off. In contrast to this is Christ, who fulfilled the law. He is now the head. It is a term used of him repeatedly in the epistles, such as Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. As such, those who are in Christ even though once strangers to the covenants are raised to an exalted position in him. If you have called on Christ, this applies to you right here, Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what it means to be a part of what God has done in Christ, or to reject what he has done in him. The law is a tutor. It was given as such, and it was never to be considered a means to an end, except as it is fulfilled in Christ. However, Israel is responsible to this law until they are willing to exalt the one to whom the honor of this law belongs. It is only in Messiah that a true and right understanding of what it means to be right with God is realized. God promised the covenant blessings, and he was faithful to provide them as long as Israel was living even remotely in accord with what they were commanded. And God is just in bringing upon them the curses when they were not. All of this is a lengthy lesson for the world to read about and then to choose what is good and right. The law is good and holy, but it cannot make man who is already infected with sin good and holy, but its fulfillment can. Thank God for Jesus Christ who lived it out, died under it, and established a new and a better hope for us through his shed blood. Yes, thank God for Jesus Christ And thank God for Jesus who proved it by coming out of that tomb and giving us an everlasting hope. The contrast is made and it is complete. The law or grace? Choose wisely. Christ has done it all for you if you will just reach out to him. And remember to pray for Israel. I say this week after week, pray for them. They are the subject of these verses in the sense that they are obligated to what is said here until they get it right. Until they do, they will have many woes to go through, and many will never see the good that God has prepared for them. Pray for their eyes to be opened when you pray for the lost in your own life. Yes, pray for Israel. This is the story of Israel, and it's also a part of the story of redemptive history, is that God has given us a choice. And at the very beginning, we exercised our choice, and we turned away from him. We exercised what we have, what is called free will. And when we exercise that free will against God, not doing what he asked us to do, but instead rebelling against him, sin entered the world. And through that one sin of one man, every single person who has ever been born on this planet is infected with his sin. That is the federal headship of Adam. He is our head. And because he is our head, everything falls from him. Every single bad thing that ever happened, every sin that's ever been committed has happened because He disobeyed God, and we are infected with it. It's so deep in us that it runs through our minds. It runs out of our tongues. It permeates every action that we take in this life. That's a terrible thing that has infected us, but there is a cure. One person was born on this planet who was not born with Adam's sin, and that's because God is his father, and because God is his father, the sin did not transfer from father to son. He was conceived in the womb of a woman and she was the vessel that carried him. But God being his father means that no sin transferred to him. Now he's born under the law that he gave to Israel. And because he's born under that law, he could ostensibly sin. But he didn't. He never sinned. Some people argue, could he have sinned or couldn't he have sinned? That's called the uh, the doctrine of impeccability. I'm not here to argue that with people right now. The law says it could have sinned, if he had disobeyed it. I'm not saying the man, I'm talking about the law. The law says he could have sinned, but he never did, okay? Whether he was impeccable or not is not relevant to the law. The law is what brings about sin, and he didn't violate the law, and therefore he lived under the law without sin. Being born without sin means that when he died, he died without sin, and yet he died for sin. The word says that God imputed all of the sin of the world to him. He became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. This is the transfer that is allowed under the law of Moses. How do we know that? Because they went down to Jerusalem with an animal and they sacrificed that animal and said, I'm transferring my sin to this animal, cut its neck, the blood comes out and the animal dies and the, the transfer is made. Not that was only a picture of the coming Christ. It didn't actually do anything. That's explained in the book of Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It only anticipated the better sacrifice of Christ. But he can because he's perfect. And so he died in fulfillment of the law. He died for anybody that will simply believe that he did this for you. It says in the Bible that you will be saved. I believe that Christ died for my sins. He was buried. He rose again. And it says if you will believe that simple message of salvation that you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and you will have a completely different eternity than you had just a moment before. So I would ask you to make that decision today and that you would call on Christ and you would live for him all the days of your life. I was talking to the family here earlier before anybody else got here. We talked for about maybe 45 minutes and I said, these children need to remember this right now. Right now, they need to remember the lessons that their parents are teaching them. They fled from New York because they believe that the message of the Bible does not allow them to do certain things that are being required of them in New York. And they came down here on faith. And so pray for this family so that they can make the right decisions concerning their future. Okay? This is what we are to do, is to teach our children this now. Because I'm telling you, it's a wicked world, and they're going to be exposed to all kinds of stuff if they go to public school. And it's the parents' responsibility to make sure that they don't believe the nonsense that they're going to be hearing and to have a good foundation and a grounding now. This is what I would pray that every parent that is out there that has children will do. Please do that. All right. We've got a closing verse for you from Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by works of the law. I'm going to be the standard of righteousness. It doesn't work that way. The Lord, our righteousness. That's what the Bible teaches. Yehovah Tzikenu, the Lord our righteousness. Next week is Deuteronomy 28, 45 through 51. More bad for Israel here in these verses, and that ain't no jive. It's entitled, The Blessings and the Curses. Part five. That'll be our 81st Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, Jay's got a little bit of a heart problem right now. He's waiting to get it resolved. And I know he gets really excited before doing that every week. So we need to pray that he doesn't get overexcited and go drumming himself out of existence. Good job, Jay. That was perfect. Okay. I got a poem for you, The Blessings and the Curses, Part 4. But before I give it to you, I want to ask you a question. And you really have to... This isn't so much a Bible question, although it relates to the Bible. It's how to interpret the Bible. Okay? If you get this, I'll give you... Uh, we'll give you an Indy 500 Oval right here. Okay. This is from Seth out in Kansas. We got some people moving to Kansas right now. Okay. Today we saw parallelism. Mm-hmm-hmm, right? Matches. Parallelism. Another literary tool is a statement that seems illogical or contradictory, but it actually conveys a deeper truth. What is that called? No, that's, that's ironic. It's not that. It's something illogical. It was a good guess, though. Illogical or contradictory, but it actually conveys a deeper truth. Paradox. Paradox. Oh, man, you get a a supercar. (laughs) Put that on yourself and enjoy looking at it all the days of your life. Okay, it's a paradox. Okay, there are several paradoxes in the Bible. Actually, there's quite a few. Paul uses one of them in the book of Titus where he says, all Cretans are liars. He's quoting a guy from Crete. How can that be? If he's telling the truth, then he's not a liar. But if he's, see, so that's a paradox. But here's, here's a paradox right from scripture, a living sacrifice. That's teaching you a a deeper truth. How can you be a sacrifice and still be alive? Right? Okay. So that's a paragraph. There's all kinds. Um, what's another one? Jesus gives one. He says, um, uh, uh, if you lose your life, if if you will you will find it that's right if you lose your life you will find it. that's a paradox okay remember your literary tools and you will be doing well i'll tell you that because there's a lot of great information in there i got excited about doing communion and i forgot to read you the poem okay the <laughs> blessings and the curses part 4 you shall carry much seed out to the field but gather little in for the locust shall consume it you shall plant vineyards and them you shall tend but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes For the worms shall eat them. This shall be their end. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, hoping for a great crop. But you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for off shall your olives drop. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours. For they shall go into captivity at my hand. Locusts shall consume all of your trees and the produce of your land. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you. And you shall come down lower and lower, because you are neither faithful nor true. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. Your finances shall fail. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of Israel. I'm sure they're not really appreciative of it right now because they have to go through the difficulties that they agreed to in advance But someday they will see the wisdom in what you have done, and they will be more appreciative than they could possibly know that not only are they freed from the law of Moses, but they are entered into a new covenant by a simple act of faith. When they stop working and when they start believing, great things are coming upon this earth, and may those days be soon. But until then, help each of us to get the word out, to tell others of our responsibilities before you by accepting the gospel of peace, which is handed out to the nations for our salvation. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus who has made this possible. Thank you for what you have done in him, and we praise you and we glorify you endlessly for that. In Jesus' name, amen.